God bless and welcome to this week's episode of Family Discussion. We are so glad that you've joined us today. Family Discussion is a podcast of Reform Margins, a site dedicated to providing a platform for people of color to engage the larger Reformed and Evangelical conversations. Jesus teaches us in the Gospel of John that the world will know that we are his followers by the way that we love one another. And yet it seems like the love of Jesus is less and less evident in the way that we speak to and about one another, especially when we disagree. So, in the hopes of recapturing the brother-sister love that Jesus has won for us, we are calling a family meeting. For the next half hour, let's cut through the noise and look at the issues without slander and malice. It's time for a family discussion. Well, God bless and welcome back to another episode of Family Discussion. This is Marcus Ortega with you. And as always, I am joined by the kind-hearted Lisa Spencer. Lisa, how are you doing today? Kind-hearted. I am so glad you said that. You know what? I received that. I will take that, brother. There you go. Uh, and again, it's just one of those, you know, and sometimes like we have our moments, right? We, we, you know, we get those little impulses as much as we try to like walk in the spirit. You know, the flesh just rises up its ugly head and... Especially when you're, uh, I don't know, for me, it's like waiting in lines or waiting too long. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's the worst. Um, you know, or when folks just rub you the wrong way. It's just something about, I don't know, it, it's, you know, it, it's just that thing. Like you're, you know, you're humming along with Christ. It's you and Jesus. And, you know, you're abiding in the vine. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then somebody cuts you off or makes you wait too long or says something uh, ugly and you know uh it just all goes right but you know thank god it's all part of the sanctification process and you know um, it is kindness is a fruit of the spirit right yes so uh i i hear you it, it has been a uh i'm in a little bit of that place right now uh because the ortega household has spent the last few days with covid and oh, no. uh, so we're all feeling good, um, but it does mean that life stops um, and you the we all had to isolate for uh, for a few days. And so, you know, you lose your kind heartedness when you, you can't escape. You can't get away. You can't do the things you want to do. Like life regularly throws things at us. And that's why I'm glad that, um, you know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness is a fruit of the spirit and it is the spirit who works it in us <laughs> and therefore amen uh, it's the work it of the is spirit. not natural it's supernatural <laughs> a, you know amen and can i just say look i'm just gonna throw this out here because i've seen some christians like dunking on kindness you know sometimes it's labeled as niceness can, can we not do that like <laughs> you know it's a fruit of the spirit people be kind. I mean, if you're, <laughs> I'm gonna get in trouble for this, but let's let's just be clear. If your theology has you dunking on the fruit of the spirit, then maybe your theology is not bi as biblical as you think it is. I'm just gonna put it out there. Maybe okay. that ain't the Bible that's speaking through you. So um, that, that that speaks volumes. <laughs> it really does. All right, uh, we are. Uh, really, we have been spending the last couple of weeks talking about gender, but we're going to broaden this out big time 
um, and talk about the broad effects of the fall from Genesis 3 so that we're able to more clearly speak about the way that the fall twists up things like gender and sexuality, um, the enmity that is placed between people that will lead to a lot of the, the racial sin that takes place in our current context. So we're going to get into a lot of that by looking broad first and then narrowing in. But before we do, um, last week, you had the opportunity to listen to us have a conversation with uh, a couple dear brothers from the PCA. And Lisa, I just wanted to ask, how do you think that conversation went? How, what was that like for you? Um, you know, it was fun, you know, because I know these guys and I, you know, I, I know their hearts for the Lord. I know that, um, you know, that they really strive to be faithful and try to be charitable. Um you know, nuancing where, where possible, like we can't nuance everything. Um, you know, there are lines, there are boundaries, um, you know, of, of orthodoxy. Um, but they really, they try to be, you know, stay in that lane, but also to be very generous with, um, with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's what I really appreciate about both of them. And that came out in that conversation. Well, you know, this was my, sorry, I'm adjusting my microphone a little bit here, folks, so you're hearing me do that live. Um, you know, I don't know them, um, had never had the, the pleasure of, of speaking with them, not in depth. I had met uh, Daniel Wells on Facebook, I think, um, but never in person. I, you know, I, I felt a little bit like a fly in the wall in that conversation in some respects because this is not my denomination, and I, I try not to... Um, I try not to get too involved in the internal politics of other denominations. I got enough of my own work that has to be done in Thank the EPC. You. I, you know? I wish I wish <laughs> other people would, you know, would follow suit and I'm just gonna leave that alone. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, but I, I really appreciated the openness of both of them, their willingness to get into some difficult topics, um, where there is some profound disagreement within the PCA right now and um I thought they were charitable, and I hope people really benefited from that conversation. So thank you, Lisa, for uh, inviting them on, and I, I hope that conversation blessed folks as, uh, as the PCA is working through some tough things. Yes. Um, okay. Genesis chapter 3. Uh, by keeping it broad, we're not going to get into some of the issues um, that we will be getting into in later episodes. So we're not going to get too deep into what happens to the relationship between the genders today. Um, we're not going to be getting into the twisting of sexuality today. We're going to focus on the broad themes of scripture and, and we'll see that gender, sexuality, race issues will flow from these more primary, uh, these more primary topics of what happens to us during the fall or at the fall. And so, um, you know, if you're listening and you're not very familiar with scripture, then uh, the fall is simply this. The first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve, were placed in a garden. And we've spent the last few episodes talking about what they were supposed to be doing in that garden. Well, they rebel against God by eating of a fruit that they were told they were not allowed to eat from. First Eve and then Adam. And um, by doing this... They break the covenant of works 
that had been created for them. And so if you want to know what the Covenant of Works is, go back. You'll find an episode this season that was about the Covenant of Works that'll kind of walk you through it. And there had been a, a warning that in the day that they eat of this, they would surely die. And what we get for the next, um, really for chapter 3 and into chapter 4, is a description of what that death looks like. What does it mean to die in the day that they eat of the fruit? And so um, we're going to make some broad observations about what happens there in Genesis 3. Um, Lisa, one of the first things that we see as we, we go through these verses briefly, what we see is that before even God speaks to Adam and Eve, they clothe themselves and they hide from God. So their eyes are opened is how the, the text describes it. Their eyes are opened after they eat from the fruit. And then they immediately close them, clothe themselves because they see that they are naked. And then they hide from God. Um, those two acts reveal a lot about what it means to die in this sense. So Lisa, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about those couple of things, the clothing and then the, mm -hmm. the hiding from God. Right. It's so before, before this happened, there was, you know, this kind of free fellowship, right? There was what they knew was only goodness. Um, and so when this act of disobedience happens, now all of a sudden they realize that there is, you know, that there, there is, um, a lack of goodness, a lack of, um, you know, that lack of perfection, you know, the fact that they are now exposed um, and they recognize that and then they, you know, and then they need to hide themselves. And I think the hiding, you know, I, I think for me that when I look at how that plays out in scripture, how that plays out, you know, throughout history, how they're just, just being, you know, being a human, just how people are or how people can be, um, you know, it has such, such deep, um, you know, a really deep seated implications, right? That, you know, that, that hiding that goes on the, the fact that we're confronted with a lack of goodness, but then we want to hide ourselves. Um, from God's perfection. And that plays out in so many ways. I think that one of the things that strikes me about the hiding is I think that it, it gives us a, a better description for how to define enmity with God. Um, hmm. When we think of enmity with God, we, we often think of a war metaphor where we're at war with God. And, and the, the, the hiding from one another, there's a loss of intimacy that takes place between the man and the woman here because the clothing is not for God's sake. It's for one another's sake. There's a distancing, right, that happens between the man and the woman as they clothe themselves. Um, uh, there is, we, we often talk about enmity with God and enmity with others. We're at war with God and we're at war with others. That's true. But I think the war metaphor is often considered as two uh, opposing forces 
attacking one another. And I think the way scripture describes our enmity with God is as if you were an opposing force that is thoroughly and completely outmatched in every way. When that's the case, you don't fight, you run and hide. Hmm. Our enmity with God is, is often lived out by us hiding from him every chance we get. We are trying to, and of course it's impossible, you can't hide from God, but we do everything we can to hide from him. And we hide from him by placing things on ourselves. We place, um, we place morality on ourselves often. We come up with a moral code that's a really good moral code, and I say, I'm going to do my best to please whatever God is out there. I'm just going to be a good person. And that is a way of hiding from the true God, because the true God says, come close, remove all the things that would hide you from me, because... I see through it all anyway, but we try and hide. We clothe ourselves with good works, with religiosity, um, with with success and relationships and all of these things. And uh, most perversely, we hide ourselves with explicit sins to say, well, if I can now just please myself through these sins, that will hide me from the, um, the wrath of a holy God against my sins. Somehow... Adding more sin will hide me from the results of my sin. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's 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 the really the, the insanity of the mm -hmm. sinful heart, right? And and I think instead of us thinking about enmity from purely a a warfare, I'm attacking God because most people aren't attacking God. They're, that's not at least they're not intending to do so. They're hiding from Him all the time, and mm -hmm. and I think. Um, by by reframing enmity according to Genesis 3, they're at enmity with God when they run and hide from him. I think that gives us a better picture of what it looks like for us to be at enmity with God today. Right. And that's anchored in a, you know, self-sufficiency, right? So right. prior to the fall, they are, you know, there is a connection there with there's pure fellowship with God. And now that that's broken, you know, so now I, I like the way that you put that in terms of the things that you put on yourself, right? There are fig leaves, but they're, you know, putting on our own morality, our own good works, um, our own um, sufficiency, you know, to show that we are a good person. Because what this text shows me is that we, we you know, we, under, we do understand goodness. We understand perfection. And when that's broken... And because now you, apart from God, you want to, you know, you want to be, to, you know, to have some semblance of goodness. So now I, you know, I have to go and, and do something to validate myself. And I think as we, as we do that, as we do these things to validate ourselves, where we end up is with competing moralities, which is where we're at today. Right, we yes. we form our own moralities that we put on. Uh, there's an interesting article in First Things not long ago um, that Carl Truman wrote, where he's I just talking read it about. This morning. Oh, did you? Yeah. So I did. Um, it was excellent. He, he's talking about the the lack of a transcendent morality, and how that can lead us to this the kind of, of confusion and chaos that we have today, and you know we're um, we're seeing that take place where you have these dual these two these dueling moralities that are going at each other in our context today. You have a conservative morality, 
and a progressive morality. And, and rather than it be kind of the postmodern, what's good for you is fine, what's good for me, it's now they're, they're dueling one another. They're going after one another. And the reason they can't find common ground is that the common ground is no longer transcendent. It's what they put on themselves. They haven't instead said, I'm going to take off all of these things that I have and approach the one God who is transcendent and who, who can give me an ethic according to who he is rather than me trying to fashion something for myself. And so there's this, I think we're seeing the, the putting on playing out a lot um, in our own context today. Mm -hmm. Yes. And so the other interesting thing that happens in this passage is what what happens with one another, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. they're you know they're exposed, they you know they hide themselves, but then after God confronts them, then their then their focus is now not, instead of, of working, uh, walking in harmony with one another, now they're accusing one another, right? Um, and they're, you know, shifting that, you know, I, which I think, you know, I love your insight on that because I think that is a way of hiding, mm. right? If we can take, if we can put something on somebody else, then we're, you know, then we, we can hide behind whatever goodness that we, you know, that we put on ourselves. Well, and look at the way that this trickles down. In the way that they are trying to shift the blame, they try and shift to blame, or, or they mm -hmm. they point at the one that they deem weaker than themselves, right? And so Eve blames the serpent, and the man blames the woman, mm -hmm. and and there is this um, we see this take place. If if I can redirect God's um, displeasure with me onto somebody else then I have somehow hidden myself from God, and now he only sees them, right? This happens every time you're in a church service and the preacher is preaching, and other people come to mind when he's talking about particular sins, and you never put it to yourself. You're blame-shifting. You're saying, I don't want to be seen. I want to hide from that. And so I'm going to make sure that other people are seen. And um, this can end up in some pretty profound injustices, because we're so busy of if uh, if the other is is suffering, then I'm hidden from having to receive what uh, what I'm due in my own mm -hmm. sin, and uh, it gets us to some pretty hideous things throughout history. Yes, so it it really does, and we and we really need to be honest about that. And even when we talk about, you know, when we talk about racism, you know, we can get into the you know, the dueling definitions of what that is, but there are underlying sins that stem from what happened at the fall. And so just like when when sin entered the world and then you see this turning on one another, that there was this, you know, and, and I like how you put it, that, um, um, you know, that it's turning on those the the weaker um and you know and and so but then what happens when that sin infests a group dynamic when it infests a culture well we we've seen that throughout history with you know uh different forms of slavery um chattel slavery in america we've seen it with ethnic strife 
Um, we, I mean, and definitely, I mean, look at the Holocaust. Well, you know, what was that? It was one group of people saying that, oh, you are, you know, again, it's the, you know, it's the shifting, right? You are not us. And therefore, we need to eliminate you. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, we just we, we just see that. And yeah, and, and again, in so many different ethnic conflicts that have happened globally, um, where basically one group of people have, you know, considered another group of people, they're, you know, they're, you know, they are the problem. Right. If we can just eliminate this problem, then we would be okay. Then we will be good. Well, and, and, and we see even biblical language used to justify this, right? The, the, the entire uh, curse of Ham uh, heresy is mm -hmm. built around the idea, well, they are cursed. Therefore, I'm shifting away from me and mm -hmm. onto the cursed people as if... Mm -hmm. As, as if the white folks weren't also cursed by the same, you know, or, or at least right. infected by the same sin, right? Um, and so we, we see this kind of blame shifting between one another. Um, we see the way that we are re regularly hiding ourselves from God himself. Um, but now the text continues and we see God actually um, show up on the scene. They tried to hide and lo and behold, uh, were ineffective in doing so. What a shock. And um, God pronounces curses on the serpent and on the ground. And then he also describes the way that sin will now affect both the man and the woman. And the reason mm -hmm. I'm, I'm doing that, so I, I want to be very careful in how we use the word curse. Um, I only want to use it where the Bible uses it. Um, the serpent is clearly cursed in Genesis 3. The ground is clearly cursed in Genesis 3. The man and the woman are not clearly cursed in Genesis 3. However, the effect of sin on their mm -hmm. lives is described. And so they're not unchanged by this. They're now at enmity with God and at enmity with one another. They're hiding from God and hiding from each other. Um, but the word curse is one that has been used and overused, I think, sometimes. We want to be careful with, with that. And so let's talk about the cursing first, the cursing of the serpent and the cursing of the ground. Um, Lisa, the cursing of the serpent, um, how does this impact the way you understand our relation to the serpent, to the evil one? Um, there, There is a change in relationship that takes place here with the curse. Yes. Um so it's you know if if we just see that he's talking to a snake we miss <laughs> you know we're gonna we're yes. gonna miss the whole thing yes. uh, which by the way and uh, right before we got on it, it made me think of revelation 12 right and the the war with the serpent which you know if i'm reading revelation through my millennial lens um you know this is a war that has been going on since this happened right but thanks be to god he gave us a promise and he gave us victory through christ and that i know i'm jumping ahead but um you know but the the fact that you know that when sin was introduced in the ground it was it it, it was going to have such far and wide 
um, you know, it would dig its tentacles, you know, deep into the bowels of God's creation, um, that there had to be that curse upon what the serpent represented, which was the evil one who is at work. Yes, amen. And and here's here's the thing. So the Bible describes the serpent, Satan, as a roaring lion that is prowling around seeking who he may devour, right? He's looking for the weak that he may devour them. But overwhelmingly, in addition to that, the serpent is described as cursed and defeated. And and I think as we are approaching um, issues of spiritual war warfare and stuff like that, which is I probably like 18 seasons down the road. Um, but, but I think it's, we can underestimate the evil one by pretending that he's not prowling around and trying to destroy us. But we can also, and this seems to be the ditch that a lot of people do fall in, overestimate him. He's been defeated. Like when you go to Revelation 12, what you read is that this dragon, this ancient serpent called Satan, is cast down. He's defeated. There is a war that happens in heaven and he loses. And that defeat culminates in his final destruction when, when he and hell are thrown into the lake of fire. I think what I'm getting at here is the the... The war metaphor for who we are as Christians can get overused because most of the war, there is a war against the flesh. That is clear in the scriptures. That, that is where it wages the sin in our flesh, wage war against our souls. And so we ought to be mortifying it. But our first step in Christianity is not towards warfare, it's towards rest in the one who waged the war and won the war on our behalf. Amen. And, and I think we ought to be careful by saying, yeah, see, in the garden there was a war that took place and Adam and Eve lost and we have been at war with the serpent ever since. And I'm like, man, even before he addresses the man and the woman, he curses the serpent. He puts the serpent in his place and says, I defeat you now. And will ultimately defeat you in the cross. And and I think that that kind of war mentality in the Christian, when it's not directed inward at her own flesh, is ordinarily inappropriate. Right. And there, I mean, and I don't think we should dismiss the war metaphor, right? Because if you look at Ephesians 6, when Paul describes the... Um, you know, he wrestled not against flesh and blood, but against principality and powers. And he describes it using this war metaphor and he does that in second corinthians chapter 10 right the weapons of our warfare are not carnal where i think where we go astray is when we misdefine what that what that war is like i think the war metaphor really demonstrates the intensity that you know of the evil that comes against us but thanks be to god who always gives us victory in christ right that is what scripture says uh you know to your point about you know satan's defeat at the cross um but i think that one of the what i've come to appreciate about the war metaphor and especially look that means like 
with us first. Like, let's start with us, right? We started off this conversation talking about how you're humming along in the spirit, then all of a sudden, you know, you kind of nut up about something. Like, well, why does that happen? Um, because there is a war, and we need to take that seriously first with us. But it doesn't look like what we typically ascribe to war fair, right? But I think that the warfare metaphor is there for a reason to show the intensity, um, the intensity of it. I, I agree. I, I just think that the direction of where the war is pointed is what's really, really important. And, mm -hmm. you know, even in, in the, it's the Second Corinthians 10, right? When mm -hmm. I look at it here, um, you know, we, we live in the world, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. And then I think five helps define what those strongholds often look like. We demolish mm -hmm. arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. But now he flips the script because it looks like it's the arguments and pretensions of others. But look how he ends this. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. It's our own arguments and pretensions, not the arguments and pretensions of others. Because we're taking our own thoughts captive. And and yes, there is a sense in which there is a, um, a spiritual warfare taking place. I just, I, I think I am sensitive to the way war language is used to pit people against other people. Mm -hmm. And and the way we are to be approaching other people in Christ is from a disposition of love, not a disposition of warfare. Right. And and I think we just have to be really careful. War is an appropriate metaphor for how we are attacking ourselves because we must yeah. mortify our flesh. And and that's where I think there is a spiritual warfare that is out there. But I, I am in a place, and you're just hearing this, my own processing of, of how I want to internalize this myself. I am going to war against myself way mm -hmm. more times than I would ever. I, I don't know that I ever would go to war against another person. I just don't know that that's the the way scripture describes our warfare. Right. Because and it's that's not why against I flesh and that, blood. Right. And that's why I think that what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10 is so instructive because he says the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. When we are going after other people, that is carnal, Amen. right? Our warfare is not supposed to look like the world's warfare, right? Because we, we are coming at it from a different paradigm. Our warfare, actually, our, our warfare is in the love for one another, especially when we're called to love our enemy. That's mm -hmm. warfare. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. To take it on the cheek and offer the other, right? It's just the the turning of the other cheek metaphor is a part of this war metaphor. We take a lick and we say, hit me again because I love you. I'll never hit you back. Um, and, and that's hard. That's incredibly hard to do. Um, so there is now the curse on the serpent. There's a curse on the ground. Um, this this is what we experience all the time when we talk about these uh, catastrophic um, events, these natural disasters that take place. Um, there was a uh, uh, really horrible fire that that tore through Colorado not long ago. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a friend of mine is preaching at a church in an area of Philadelphia 
um, here in a couple weeks where a major fire just ripped through a row home and seven children were killed, 13 people in all. It was this horrific thing. Um, not arson that I'm aware of, not, not malicious, just what we would call the natural act of God, a, a natural disastrous, terrible thing is all because the ground itself, the creation itself has been cursed and it is groaning for relief. And that relief will not come until the final day when the sons and daughters of God are revealed and, and the second resurrection takes place. So it's, it's this, this constant battle we have with creation. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's a mm-hmm. difficult thing to see the suffering that happens around the world. And um, we can say, well, that's because of X, Y, and Z sin. Um, we'd probably be wrong. It's because of this particular sin that took place in the garden. There, there is a specific sin that led to this, and that's the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden and rebelling against mm-hmm. God has led to all the destruction, the natural disasters that we see. Amen. And here's what here here's what I've observed, um, which was also to me has been instructive about just sort of the deep rootedness. Um, you know, for a number of episodes now, we started off talking about, you know, we were kind of planted in Genesis one and two and talking about God's good good creation. Isn't it interesting that it was almost impossible for us to talk exclusively about the goodness without talking, without mentioning, right? We were, we had intentions of getting to this episode all along, Mm -hmm. but it was almost impossible to just stay fixed on the good without even some kind of nod to how that has gone awry because of what happened in the garden. Well, the, the, just the tragedy of what our sin has caused in in the world and in ourselves we cannot we cannot conceive of a world where sin does not exist we just can't we we can talk about it from genesis 1 and 2 we can say that such a thing existed we can go to revelation 21 and 22 and say such a thing will exist again but to actually have a conception of what that looks like to have a world where there is no sin, there is no temptation to sin, uh, we can't comprehend such a thing. That's uh, incredibly tragic. We've lost, yeah. we've completely lost our memory of Eden, and we've lost our ability to imagine the new heavens and new earth, um, because we don't know what it is for sin to not be in the picture, and and yeah. that's how just how pervasive sin is um in all of us who are a part of god's creation you know when when the creation is when the ground is cursed there is a sense in which um everything that comes from the ground including human beings because that was our place of origin the dust of the earth we all that that's where we can see that human beings have borne some form of curse is is Mm -hmm. it's we can't even remember or imagine what it would be to not have sin in the picture. That's tragic to me. That's incredibly tragic. Right. And that, and that also ought to maybe give us a, um, I don't know, maybe a better, a stronger hope for what happens in Revelation 21, right, with the new heavens and the new earth. And here's the thing. I probably I may, I think I've, met, I've mentioned this in a previous season. 
Um, but we, you know, there's this tendency to, you know, to look at, well, you know, we'll be face to face with the Lord, right? Um, but we'll also be with each other. Mm. And there will mm -hmm. be the absence of sin. So all of that mm. hiding that we do, all of that, um, you know, projecting out, all of that, um, one, uh, you know, one othering that goes on, like, man, that's going to be absent. Mm. And there's going to be pure fellowship. And so the things that humans do to one another, um, even church folks, like that's that's gonna be gone. We won't even look at other people with suspicion. Wow. I I like can you even imagine can you <laughs> no, even imagine that? I can't even imagine. I'm a pastor, man. I can't imagine what that's like. <laughs> oh, amen. Amen. And and you know, that that leads, I think, nicely to the, the last piece of this, right? So we've talked about the enmity that's created, we've talked about the cursing of the serpent. The cursing of the ground and for the last couple minutes i just want to focus on um, the last observation from this text is that this is in response to the statement in the day that you eat of it you will surely die and there is death that will now take place the fall narrative we limit it to three i think the bible includes four and five in this narrative as well and the reason i include this uh, one of my colleagues at my church um, uh, pastor tim always brings up hey one of the most important chapters in the bible is genesis 5 and at first you're like really man it's a genealogy and he said yes because when you read it what do you get and then he died and then he died and then he died and then he died and it is the it is a heart-wrenching genealogy because it was never supposed to be this is the 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 death of the generations is the result of what Adam and Eve did in that garden. And and that's that's why not just death, but finally res rescue from death is in Genesis 3. Um, Genesis 3.15 describes one who would come from Eve and crush the head of the serpent. And um, I know this is getting way ahead. But the good news is that we in Christ are freed from that Genesis 5 reality. And then he died, then he died, then he died. Because now in Christ, all of us who are dead, the good news is, and then he lived, and then he lived, and then he lived. and Because that's what this Holy Spirit does. He brings men and women to life. And, and so the last observation, I think, from Genesis 3 has to be that death enters into the world, but there is a promise even in that moment that it isn't always going to be that way, that out of death will come life, and that culminates in Christ and what he does in the resurrection of his church. And um, so I, I, I think we want to end with the gospel there, that in Christ there's life, and in a world of death and my goodness, we're in year two, almost starting year three of COVID-19. Um, this is a, a world of death, but in Christ, life comes from that. And, and that's a pretty remarkable thing. Um, Lisa, any thoughts I, on that? Any last amen. words? I just, the, the passage that comes to mind, I have come to give you life and life more abundantly. And sometimes that's hard to um 
to internalize, especially when you're in the midst of trials and suffering and looking at a world going mad and, you know, disruptions everywhere. But truly, Christ has come to give us life. In, in, even in the midst of all of the chaos, he is life. Amen. That's a great place to end it. Thank you, Lisa, for this conversation. Thank you all for joining us and, and uh, looking forward to being back with you again next week. But until then, that is it from Family Discussion, and we'll see you next time. Well, thank you again for joining us for this week's Family Discussion. If you'd like to learn more or catch up on episodes you missed, head on over to our home at reformedmargins.com. There you'll find great content about a whole host of issues that we pray will bless your relationship with Jesus, including articles written by Lisa Spencer and me, Marcos Ortega. Family Discussion is a podcast of Reform Margins, a site dedicated to providing a platform for people of color to engage the larger Reformed and Evangelical conversations. Your hosts are Marcos Ortega and Lisa Spencer. Our producer is Larry Lynn. Family Discussion is hosted by Podbean and recorded with Audacity. If you like what you heard today, it would be a great help to us if you gave a quick review and rating on iTunes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to your favorite content so that you don't miss our next Family Discussion. Thank you.